0: Kubernetes is an open-sourced container orchestration service released by Google in 2014. It has quickly grown into a platform with a huge community of enthusiasts and professionals. Besides becoming the de facto standard for container orchestration, it has fostered an ecosystem of related tools and services with increasing power and sophistication. Argo, a project developed by the company Applatics and acquired by Intuit, is a set of essential Kubernetes-native tools for deploying and running jobs and applications on Kubernetes. All the Argo tools are implemented as controllers and custom resources. Some of these tools are Argo workflows, Argo events, Argo continuous deployment, and Argo rollouts. In this episode, we talk to Alex Collins, principal software engineer at Intuit, about using Argo to manage Kubernetes applications.
1: Alex, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jeffrey. Well, good morning. Hey, good morning. So today we're talking about Argo and Kubernetes and related subjects. I'd like to start with a brief exploration of two unrelated subjects, which is, well, seemingly unrelated subjects. Kubernetes, the container orchestration system, and Airflow, which is a directed acyclic graph manager typically used for data engineering tasks. These are typically seen as unrelated tools, but I see them as loosely related, at least because Kubernetes is the distributed systems operating system and Airflow is sort of the directed acyclic graph manager that manages your computation and your execution. But these were not made for one another. Maybe you could just give me your brief exploration of modern distributed systems tools and how they relate to one another.
2: Yeah, interesting question. I can't speak too much. I can't obviously speak in more detail about Argo's take on this and the kind of interesting challenges that we, we find in that area. Obviously, the Kubernetes architecture is kind of very heavily orientated around really, you know, the core aim is to be able to make it easy to deploy web applications that can run at massive scale across multiple machines and clusters and nodes. So it's really orientated very strongly about kind of typically long running tasks that can be terminated at short notice. And in fact, the termination period on Kubernetes, I think is yet you have 30 seconds to clean up after you do it. And things like Airflow and Argo workflows, they operate slightly differently. They run jobs or tasks or you know, batch processing tasks that typically run to completion um, and may take a lot longer than 30 seconds to complete the work that they're doing. And that kind of creates a bit of friction on the the Kubernetes platform. And that's one of the main things that you need to address when you're building these kind of software applications to be able to do that. The other thing that is kind of very key to what we do is around the data management aspects. So if you're running a batch processing job or or some kind of stream processing job, then then data is really important to you. And it's not gonna be typically a small, ephemeral HTTP requests. You'll often be working on quite large files that need to be moved around and that's obviously expensive moving data across a network and you know you're not going to want to stop halfway through processing one of those files you're going to want to process the whole files yet you've always got this kind of background risk that your process might be stopped by the system infrastructure so that it can use that processing capacity for some other more important job and i think that's kind of one of the main things that is you know kind of a current challenge for software like airflow and argo and to a degree, Tecton running on Kubernetes.
1: Tecton running on Kubernetes. Talk about that in more detail.
2: So, I mean, Argo's not the only you know, piece of software running that does task-based workloads, that's particularly Argo workflows rather than Argo CD. Tekton also does that, but that focuses much more on the cd use case. And again, it's another example of where you might have a long-running process on Kubernetes that you typically want to run to completion, but again, has this threat hanging over it that it may be stopped midway through the process. And you need to build in various mitigating actions for that. And you can do that in a few different ways. One way is to have various types of retry on that task. So if it fails the first time, you try again, or you use some kind of memoization strategy to break that task down. So it doesn't necessarily need to be run again. You know, it can just start again halfway through, you know, resume strategy. Or there are things like a prod disruption budget, which are kind of Kubernetes core primitives that can be used to defend that as well.
1: So... Can you just talk a little bit about how the impetus for Argo came
2: about? Yeah, I mean, I can give you a bit of history, probably. Argo actually originated as a product at a company called Applatics in around 2016, 2017. And that company was acquired by Intuit, looking to kind of accelerate their cloud journey. And then a number of the companies have joined over a period of time as other Key contributors, I guess you could call them, including BlackRock, Red Hat, and CodeFresh, just to name a couple of kind of the the bigger names in the in the area. Now that was originally the original product that was marketed was basically a workflow engine for Kubernetes, because not much existed at at that time. And that's Argo workflows. And probably maybe what's slightly better known is Argo CD. So Argo CD is uh, cloud native GitOps. Software application. Do you do you know what I mean by GitOps? Should I should I explain that?
1: Yeah, I have a lot of issues with that word, but I'd love for you to explain what it is to me.
2: I it's been fascinating. I I sometimes I think I usually quote my colleague. He says GitOps on Kubernetes is Git clone followed by kubectl apply, which is, I think it kind of really underplays it, really understates, because it doesn't really talk about why those two things combined together works really well. I don't necessarily think the word GitOps is is necessary. It's some kind of configuration ops, but Git is obviously a popular version control tool. And all the version control tools bring some really useful out-of-the-box capabilities, such as things like auditing. So you you, you know who's made a change, you know when that change was made, you know that there was some kind of security process about that. So you know that the person was authorized to make that change. And then, of course, it gives you a history because you've got your Git history. And that allows you to if you have two commits in your git history, one that represents the state of the application you want tomorrow and the one that, that is today, and if you roll out that new version and it doesn't go particularly well, then you can simply roll back to the previous version. There's no kind of manual process to do it. It's typically a very you know pretty straightforward click of a button. And I don't think that really was necessarily the case yesterday, you know, a couple of years ago. So that's really why Git brings the value But wouldn't necessarily need to be Git. I mean, you could have some other system in place to do that. The other half of that puzzle is, is the fact you're running on cloud native, on Kubernetes native, if you prefer. And that brings all the things that are really useful with Kubernetes, such as the fact that you can store resources, you can build controllers, you've got the Kubernetes RBAC, and you've got all the scaling characteristics that Kubernetes combined. And when you put those two things together, you just have a lot more than the sum of the parts. And Argo CD adds some additional items on top of that, things like multi-tenancy and multi-cloud capabilities. So with Kubernetes today as it is, I think everybody's happy working with individual clusters. But when you look at things like the talks that have been accepted to KubeCon in a couple of months' time, you can see there's a lot of multi-cluster stuff in that area. And I think that's going to be a really interesting area, just generally in Kubernetes. But Argo CD effectively has to support that from day one because you'll have one management cluster and you'll have a number of other clusters where it installs that application. What is your concerns with the term GitOps? I'm fascinated. I don't really know what
1: it means. I mean, I guess it means that every time you push to Git, it's supposed to kick off an entire workflow that pushes that code to production. Is that the concept?
2: Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's, yeah. In a reductive form, yeah.
1: I mean, isn't that the same thing as continuous delivery? or continuous integration, two more. Continuous integration and continuous delivery, like whenever somebody tried to tell me that those were separate things, I got frustrated. Yeah. And GitOps is just a rebranding of the same thing.
2: Yeah, you just don't have one without the other. You don't package your application by the expectation you're going to deploy it into an environment. And you can't deploy an application that you haven't packaged. So you do have the two at the the same time. And it is interesting how you always seem to have this handoff between the two. I mean, I wonder if it's because the tooling for CI is often very different to the tooling for CD, you know, in your CI process, you're gonna have a compiler and you're gonna have a test framework and a bunch of test infrastructure. And then you're gonna push that, you know, the result of that is just a binary typically that goes into a, a repository. And the CD aspect is just taking the binary back out of the repository and sticking it onto computers. Yeah, but you don't have one without the other, definitely not. Yeah, m- maybe it's a bit of an artificial line, maybe.
1: What's a typical use case for
2: an Argo workflow? There are kind of two answers to this question. So the really general answer is that Argo Workflows is, is a completely general workflow execution platform from Kubernetes and doesn't really have anything that's perhaps different to any other systems on there. But its features is because it kind of leverages that ability to scale. You can build very very large workflows that fan out particularly wide into you know thousands and tens of thousands of tasks within your workflows, and that makes it suitable for a number of tasks inside the machine learning space. So it makes it kind of a great component to put into an existing machine learning application. So a lot of kind of users of Argo workflows probably don't know they're using it because they're using something like Kubeflow Pipelines, which has Argo workflows embedded in it. And there's a number of such and such a flow pieces of software that have Argo workflows within it. The other thing that Argo workflows that does particularly well is it deals with kind of like large amounts of data particularly well. It's got really good integration, really good first class integration with various kind of bucket like storages on Azure, Google Clouds and obviously on AWS. So if you're working with very large files in the gigabyte range, it just makes that very easy to do on. Kubernetes platform. So a lot of people use it for ML. We also see plenty of things in kind of the infrastructure automation space, because you're kind of already working in infrastructure. If you're on Kubernetes and you need a tool to automate it, you know, you're know, you going to reach the very first tool that's available to you there. So Argo Workflows makes quite a, kind of a good fit for, for that kind of use case. And we see, we also see, and I'd love to see more of this, people using it for CI. And we're stepping back a bit and talking a bit about CI, but people who are looking to move off Jenkins onto something a bit more cloud-native. And maybe they don't want to go to Jenkins X, people are using that. That's a bit more of an edge use case, I would say. And then we see a lot of people using it for things like ETL, batch processing, and just kind of general data handling. And they typically tie in. I mean, Argo workflows, we have in the Argo universe, we have four bits of software, and they kind of get broken down into two groups. There's Argo CD and it's little brother or little sister Argo rollouts and there's Argo Workflows. And Argo Workflows has a little brother or sister called Argo Events. And Argo Events is a, around triggering those workflows, so determining what kind of criteria that cause those workflows to be triggered. And there's a number of different ways you can do that, but quite commonly, but we mentioned, obviously Git commit, but also kind of webhooks and, and so forth. So that allows you to kind of easily set up a CI process if you want to do that with Argo Events and Argo Workflows. What you're describing
1: here is a fully composable workflow management system for event-based programming effectively. So how does Argo help a typical developer who's working in the Kubernetes ecosystem? Like what problem does it solve for me?
2: I think when we speak to our users, they really come back with like three or four things that are really important to them. And the thing that kind of underlies this, I think, is the fact that people want to use When they're using a piece of software, they want something that's typically quite fast and they want it to be reliable. And Those those are often the most important things to them. And so the the speed with Argo workflows comes from the fact that you can do these big fan out workflows and you can can offload all that work onto some cloud infrastructure that can scale up to the work that you want to do it. And the reliability comes from the various features that are there inside the product, that allow you to deal with that kind of ephemeral nature of of running on Kubernetes. And those are the two things that kind of bring it together. And they kind of make actually quite a good developer experience. And this is what we hear from developers. We kind of ask them, you know, why didn't you use this piece of software or that bit of software? And the the thing that often comes back really strongly is it's very easy to get started. They just had a great experience. First time using the software out of the gates. They were quickly able to get what they want done, done. They didn't have to necessarily learn a lot of new things to do that because they're already familiar with the Kubernetes platform. So all the kind of concepts and ideas and things that they already kind of know are already there. You know They know how to deal with the RBAC. They know what a deployment is. They know what a pod is. They know how to get their logs. They know which logging facility their logs are in. All those things, they don't have to learn any of that at all to use Argo workflows or Argo CD as well. And that just makes it really easy. And I don't know if you've And Jeffrey, if you've ever tried to install a software application, just to try it out to see if it will solve a problem, and you're there two days later, just getting the very basic setup done, and you want to just run the hello world example of it, that's like an amazingly frustrating experience. You know, it kind of, maybe you feel it reflects badly on your abilities as a software engineer not to get this popular bit of software working, but it also is a very frustrating experience. It's going to push you away from using that bit of software if it doesn't work particularly well first time. And I just think that's, you know, it's really easy to understate the importance of that. I think it's really easy to understate that. I think people often focus on features and functionality, but actually that developer experience, that user experience is incredibly important. I think that's the one thing that we we really bring to the table that kind of sets us apart from other similar projects.
1: So you're at Intuit. Intuit has a lot of complex workflows. Can you tell me about how Intuit uses Argo and Kubernetes?
2: yeah i can do so so into it's on like many companies a kind of journey to cloud native from previously running a lot of the software in house i can't talk too much in detail about kind of proprietary systems but that you know the going into the cloud and using kind of cloud resources such as kind of databases that are available in the cloud to just get things done more quickly and Intuit's built its own internal Kubernetes system called IKSN, which stands for Internet Kubernetes Service Manager, along with a developer portal. I mean, Intuit's not going to be alone in having done this with the goal of just making it almost a click button process to get a skeleton application that you can has all the services necessary with it, and you can say, well, I want to connect this application to an event bus, and I want to use some identity-based services, and I want to use these kind of security things, and need these kind of data storages and kind of, you know, like a shopping cart where you select those and you click a button and you give your service a name, and, and 20 minutes later that service is up and running, it's got all the CI and CD pipelines set up for it. It has you know skeleton sets of unit tests and integration tests available for it. and it's in, in you know in whatever kind of language you're particularly interested in. Obviously Java is a popular choice, but we also do Golang as well. And it's just all there, ready for you to do. And we also build on top of that to build a batch processing platform. So that's something that's being built at the moment and a machine learning platform. The kind of again, these both kind of leverage, you know, technologies like Kubeflow and Airflow to build those different platforms as well as some other proprietary technologies to do it. But that's all migrating onto a cloud native platform. And so things like operators are pretty commonplace and teams building their own operators. So one example I can think of is an operator who's responsible for making sure that the correct IAM roles are available for your application and you need to have the right IAM roles to be able to access the data that you want to have. So so there's things that deal with that as well. And Argo. Workflows and Argo CD sit really key as part of that vision. Argo Workflows is... We install that on every single one of the clusters that we run, and we run you know, several hundred Kubernetes clusters. So users can just, you know, as part of the application, if they want to run a workflow, they can just run the workflow. They don't need to, there's nothing there for them to do. They don't need to install Argo workflows and stuff. It's a managed solution and they get regular kind of software updates and upgrades all the time. And obviously with Argo CD, they have the tooling available to you know deploy that application already. They just, they just need to go in and click a button. And when they want to do an upgrade, it's again, it's a click of another button, removing a... Kind of a lot of that kind of not necessarily make work, but not particularly interesting work where it's you know you're not bringing the, the value to the customer that you want to be doing. You want to be solving that end user, the end customer's problem. You don't necessarily, necessarily want to be worrying too much about manifests and you know cloud formation templates and those kind of things. You want to be you know, writing actual code that brings actual customer value, and the whole thing is really geared and orientated around that. And on top of that, of course, Kubernetes I said is a great platform for dealing with processing data running web services is really great at that and so there are additional services built on that around things like data lakes and event buses that allow you to then integrate with those as well if that's where the data that you need to operate is there and that you know i think that for every organization that's kind of an ongoing journey as well you know it's not something that just happens overnight you know it's going to take you know at least 6 months you know or years to get through that process and kind of get to where you want to go and maybe when we get there, that that's all changed and we need to now go off in a different direction, do something differently. But it's pretty exciting to be involved in this, you know, to know that you're working on some of the, you know, working on tools and technologies that are used by, you know, hundreds upon hundreds of developers internally in your organization, you know, thousands upon thousands of developers in the wider open source community as well. That's, you know, it's really interesting, really exciting to work on.
1: You've been in the software industry for a while. How do you think the Kubernetes ecosystem has changed the development of software?
2: I think that there's a lot of really clear delineation with Kubernetes that makes life easier. I have been in the software industry for a long time. Thank you for reminding me. makes me feel like an old man. And I have had a conversation about punch cards earlier in my career. That did happen. When you originally deployed software, often it was a case of just, you know, copying a binary onto another server, every software engineer in the team having access to production service. And it's kind of a risky process. Nobody really wants to do that. You know, we want to be able to have gates and approval processes in place for our own security. You know, we want to know what happened when, and we want to know why it happened. And that's probably the biggest change is that we've gone from this, you know, building the binary on your desktop machine and using SCP, you copy that to another Machine and then you know deleting the existing one with RM and, and copying the new one and you know, performing a service restart, you know that is such a manual process and such a risky process and such an you know error-prone process. When we originally got Docker and the ability to package any kind of software application, you know, kind of largely language-agnostic into a binary that can then run on any. Linux, Unix host, that was fantastic because suddenly you're in a position that made it very easy to do. But you know, early in that Kubernetes journey, people were, you know, I've been using Kubernetes since version one, three, I think. So we're on two, one twenty. So, you know, 15% through the Kubernetes journey. You know, people didn't understand some of the things were happening in their software application. And I can again recall telling you a war story here, Jeffrey. I can recall having to Google the term crash loop back off and I found no results for the term crash loop back off. And I didn't know what it meant. And I couldn't figure out what it meant. And we had to we had to go and you know, figure that it meant that the application was crashing and it was in a loop and it was backing off trying to restart it because it was in a loop. And now you know, every developer knows exactly what a crash loop back off is and obviously is you know, terrified of it. And the Kubernetes makes that really easy for people to do, it provides the RBAC that I mentioned earlier. It provides kind of a declarative way to say, you know, what do I want the, you know, my application to look like? And then provides kind of really well, this is something I have mentioned earlier, like really good documentation that's really easy to understand and really easy to read. That is incredibly valuable. You know, it's, you know, I don't want lots of documentation. I want the minimum amount of the right kind of documentation to understand it. And Kubernetes just puts all that documentation out into the public domain. So any any developer can use it. Any developer coming into a company that's using Kubernetes, you know, can just get started really quickly and they can avoid doing that. I think that's, you know, one of the great things about where we are today. I'm really fascinated by technologies like autopilot from Google. Did you know autopilot? No, what is that? So it's a new version. It's it's pretty new version. Maybe it's a month or two old of Google Cloud's Kubernetes service that basically reduces the amount of operational work that you have to do. That's what, that's what's great about it. So that's the benefit. I don't have to worry about operations. It scales everything up and down for me automatically. I don't have to install all the metrics and so forth. And I think we're going to move more in that direction of a more managed solution on Kubernetes where, where users don't have to think too much about things like right-sizing their applications, getting resources right, structuring right. I think it's just all just going to become meat and potatoes tofu and potatoes for developers and they can go and focus on those things. Because again, ultimately my goal is get it done quickly, get it done reliably. And I don't want to spend too much time and effort on that. And I think that's how we're going to see it evolve over time. And I think it'll become like a stable platform as well. I could see fewer Kubernetes releases over time because when an application is mature and stable, it doesn't need too many new features. You don't actually often need new software releases of it.
1: Can you contrast the post-Argo Kubernetes world with the pre-Argo Kubernetes world? What did I have to do before Argo that was super painful?
2: So, I mean, just when it comes to Argo CD, that product didn't really exist. So Argo CD came along at the same time as Flux. So the pre-Argo CD world is kind of the pre-Flux world. And there wasn't really that kind of tooling for doing GitOps on Kubernetes, that didn't really exist. So you'd have had to do that all manually. I mean, maybe you would have been sensible enough to manage your configurations in Git. I think that would have been straightforward to for many people to do. But you would have had to build that software tool or that software agent who would have been responsible of getting your Kubernetes manifests out of Git, You're checking that code out for you and applying it to cluster and then adding all the kind of our back and reporting aspects to that that you needed and all the, all the multi-cluster stuff. With workflows, I mean, there was... You could have used things, I guess, like Mesos beforehand, but they're not cloud-native. They don't have that kind of first-class integration. So one of the nice things about workflows is that I can check the status of my workflow from an API. And anybody else also you know, using those same Kubernetes APIs can get that same kind of information as well. And that just makes that kind of integration into ROP pretty easy. But beforehand, you had things like Kubernetes jobs. But a job is kind of much more kind of simplistic and restrictive and kind of less flexible. So it didn't, it wouldn't have made it easier to do those massive fan-out workloads that you can do. You could have done them, you know, for example, by running a deployment with a large number of replicas. You could have done that, but then each replica would have understood what replica it is and what work it was doing. So you need to then build out all that logic to do. So that's part of the value that we bring to it. Which I think is hidden in your question. The other thing that particularly workflows brings to the table that isn't is not really obvious is that it deals with it adds some features to Kubernetes that don't really exist in Kubernetes. And this is the same with Tekton, in fact. It adds the ability to stop a specific container or terminate a specific container within a pod without actually deleting the pods. And that's not something that's actually possible in Kubernetes today. And it adds capabilities such as signaling processes within a pod. Again, it's not particularly, it's not available as an API within Kubernetes today. And so managing things at a pod level, which is something you need to do when you're running tasks rather than running software applications is one of the things that it brings as well.
1: Tell me about the engineering behind Argo. What has needed to be
2: built? So all the Argo suite of applications are built on a pretty standard technology stack. On the controller backend side, we use Golang and gRPC. And on the front end, we use React and things like SCSS and so forth. And on top of that, on top of those layers, we've built out on the front end side, a whole like library and suite of components around rendering Software applications in the browser in real time. So both in Argo Workflows and Argo CD, you know, if you go under the user interface, you don't see the application as it was yesterday. You actually see it as it progresses, as it changes over time, as, as bits and bobs are added and removed from the application, even if you did, didn't add and remove them yourself. So that uses kind of push-based browser technology to do that, and then animation in, in there as well to kind of help the user see that. And I think there's a lot of bench strength to build a good user interface. You know, to build an experience that that people understand. So it's not just about just presenting the application or the kind of software resources in a a graph. It's about what information is really important to the user at the time that they're using that particular page. What kind of operations and actions do the user want to take when they're looking at that? So that's kind of the top layer in the user interface. Then beneath that's an API for it and the user interface uses the api so it's kind of an api first design which i think is probably the default for people now and probably goes without mentioning in most cases and that provides a set of kind of rest ish rest like endpoints over http that you can use or alternative you can like integrate them with using grpc if you're running http2 so that's kind of the next layer down of, of the application and then below that we use golang and that's grounded and golang's a relatively newish language i, I don't know maybe newish 10 years old, I guess that's new, isn't it? That contains a whole bunch of libraries and bits of code. And we, we really lean really heavily on a particular Kubernetes concept called an informer. And the job of the informer is basically to keep an in-memory representation of what's going on in the cluster and then allow you to kind of integrate with the informer as a software component and listen to changes in your cluster and perform operations on that. And that's all stuff written by the Kubernetes team. So that that forms that, that layer. And obviously then below that, is Kubernetes and Kubernetes RBAC that we utilize and use there. And that's really common. I mean, we talk a little about, from a technical point of view, the key components in those software applications are a sophisticated Kubernetes operators. And an operator is basically a bit of software that sits in a wait loop, listening to changes in the cluster and then kind of reacting to them, which is, you know, it's a simplification. And there's a whole load of other things going on there as well. There's a whole load of different bits of logic dealing with various scenarios, such as you know, a pod being deleted unexpectedly or you know there being an issue with connectivity, all the kind of normal things you need to deal with the software application. They're all kind of rolled in there. And we actually have a library we have to provide a lot of that logic that we share across all the software applications. We just call it PKG, but it's like a shared library that gets really reused in several different places. And you know, I talked a bit about like, user interface isn't necessarily just a case of putting buttons and text boxes on a page. It's also kind of understanding how the user interacts with that. So we have lots of processes where we sit down with our users and we get them to show us how they use the software. You're just on a day-to-day and we, we look at that, how they operate with it. And we look at the same way that they do that when they use kind of command line tools or automation tools to understand how they use those tools so we can make sure that we build out the right kind of tooling underneath it. And the same these kind of same bits of important knowledge apply to the backend. So the back end code, I guess, is not just, just the lines of source code. It's also the knowledge and understanding the software engineers have of that code. Sometimes that, you know, that's explicit in comments and sometimes it's tacit kind of tribal knowledge in their heads. And I don't think you'd ever kind of avoid that tribal knowledge issue. You can only kind of reduce it, but there's plenty of information in people's heads that's really incredibly important to understanding how that operates under certain circumstances. That means that, you know, a software engineer can often quickly answer a question about why is it behaving in that way? The answer may be that's how it's designed to behave. That almost forms part of the software application in my mind. How do I define an Argo workflow? So, well, you need to think about the work that you want doing. You need to think a bit about how that gets the data from data storage, depending on what that is. And then the workflow itself is defined as a Kubernetes custom resource. And a custom resource is something like a deployment or a replica set or a pod, except it's custom. So it's defined, its specification is defined by the organization that has designed it. So our custom resource for Argo workflows is called a workflow. And that basic has some metadata, you know, name, the namespace it lives in when it was created. And then it has a specification, which is in simplified, it's kind of a mixture of some kind of configuration about how it should work, when it should be garbage collected, plus information about the work it should actually do and how that work should be ordered. And that's typically specified as a series of tasks and each task is a template underneath and each template. Templates, I mean, often things just boil down to pods and containers. On Kubernetes and that's exactly what our workflow ultimately boils down to is it's here is the workflow specification but it boils down to run these pods in, in this order and wait you know when this pod is finished start that pod that's the real nuts and bolts of it.
1: What are the parts of the application of the Argo system that need the most improvement right now?
2: So on the Argo CD side I think it is managing big applications So applications with hundreds of different resources. Also, it's the thing that hasn't worked particularly well in the past is the thing called an app of apps, which is a term that's come from a community. And it's basically an Argo CD application that's made up of other Argo CD applications. It acts as this kind of Uber application. And that's often used when people want to deploy lots of very similar versions of the same application with slight configuration tweaks. And this is that kind of you know many, many clusters at scale problem that some users need to deal with. They need to have many, many versions of the application. They're all slightly different. They've got some slight different configuration, maybe around... Some TLS certificates is quite a common example, but maybe they have a pre-production version which has, which has lower resource requirements in the production version. And they, they kind of need to manage hundreds of them. And, and they've got a configuration management scale issue there. They've got so many different manifests and YAMLs that needs to do that. And that's being addressed by a new feature that is, I think it's still in alpha, it might be in beta, called an um, application set. An application set is we can see how it's derived from the App of Apps idea. It's a set of applications that are all, all, all pretty similar, and they are they typically live in different namespaces on different clusters. On the workflow side, our focus has really been on reliability and performance. The performance aspect is that we found that users are now running at a much larger scale. You know, really very large companies are now. You know, advanced in their Kubernetes journey, companies that don't even talk about it. You wouldn't even suspect unless you knew people working in these companies, they were doing that kind of stuff. You know, Because of the size of these companies, everything's done at a really large scale. And so they need to run large numbers of workflows at scale. And we've had to do a lot of work to kind of make that you know, performant and, and a pleasurable experience, including like running, running lots of documentation, best practice, and then implementing new features for that, I think we're actually really good state in the workflows area. I'm not actually expecting too many changes in that area, apart from improved kind of integration with other services, which is computationally quite expensive to do. I won't go into the boring details. And I'm kind of hoping that we're going to be bringing a new product out and that works quite well with Argo workflows it's called Argo Dataflow. But Argo workflows is orientated really about running single workflows that will finish processing some data and they're done. Whereas our good data flow is orientated around, you know, a workflow that might run forever and has kind of a different architecture underneath it as a result of that. And I think, you know, we had a lot of people asking for a streaming workflow or a continuous workflow or a workflow that can be driven from Kafka. And kind of the the underlying paradigm of a workflow is not really amenable to that. It doesn't fit particularly well, whereas Dataflow is specifically designed to address those kind of use cases. And because it's part of the Argo ecosystem, I'm hoping these will work pretty well together. They all use the same APIs and same software and you can have a workflow that triggers a data flow and an event that triggers a workflow and a, you know, all these things kind of interop particularly nicely. That means that you know if one of those tools doesn't solve for your problem straight away, you can then just, you as know, we have another tool in our toolbox for you that solves that problem for you, but you don't have to necessarily learn a lot to get started with that. So that could be the really good experience for you. And I think also multi-cluster In the machine learning space, people are looking for the ability to train their models in one place because that particular cluster might have some particular resources, like a lot of GPUs, for example, that make it really good for training a particular model, but they don't actually want to execute the model in that cluster because they don't need all that expensive GPU resource. And they want to have, well, you talked a bit about the CI and CD. What they want to do is do the CI part of ML in one cluster and then do the cd bit you know getting that model into production and that goes in another cluster and production cluster and that's that's a hurdle now to get between that so with a multi cluster workflow which i think is the next big thing on our roadmap for workflows that'll make that really easy to do because you'll be able to define a workflow that does precisely that that it starts in one cluster um does that initial process and finishes in another cluster and i think that'll actually open up loads of really interesting new use cases we i mean i can't even predict how people will end up using that if I'm honest, I think I'm hoping. I'm hoping I'll be really surprised by some really interesting things that people do with that. That's what I'm hoping.
1: Could you talk in more detail about how Argo compares to some of these other workflow management-like systems, such as what's the one Sequoia? Temporal. Have you seen that one?
2: I don't know that. I know other similar solutions because we have a lot of. A versus B versus C comparisons, kind of blog yeah. posts on the internet to compare that because you know that's a popular kind of blog post and people are really, you know, I'm I'm interested in that. I want to know how we square up against other competitors, I guess. And maybe they don't see it that way. So things like Prefect and Luigi an airflow. And typically things just, they do fit kind of different use cases. And definitely like Argo Workflows isn't necessarily the right solution for many use cases for certain people. You might want something more sophisticated. It might be the right thing for you at the beginning of your journey and may kind of continue to be the right thing for you because of its simplicity. But then you might want to get something more out of the ecosystem. So Kubeflow is a great example. And Kubeflow is a really sprawling ecosystem of machine learning tools on Kubernetes. And there's one particular tool I mentioned that Argo workflows is used, which is the Kubeflow pipeline aspect. But it makes it really easy to ladder up from there. If that's what you want to go and do, you can start out with something simple and you can go for something more complicated later on. And it, you know, it's just going to be different, different things for different teams, depending on what they want to do in that area. On the Argo CD side, I mean, the other bit of software that's very similar to Argo CD is Flux, but they have kind of different design philosophies underlying them. You know, I would be cautious talking out of turn, but Flux is a bit more opinionated about it. You know, it's less kind of user experience, user interface focused than Argo CDs. And for some people that may be preferable, you know, philosophically that might align better with what they want to do. And Argo CD has a number of, you know, has, has a very big ecosystem, lots of different companies involved in that. So that may be that what's important for you when, when you're looking at what goes on in that area. If somebody only tells you what's great about their product and they don't tell you the downsides, they're not telling you the whole story. Right.
1: So it sounds like what you're saying is the days of workflow orchestration are young. We have many, many more years of workflow orchestration to
2: develop. Yes, I, I think so. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it started in the 1960s and I don't see it going anywhere soon.
1: Yeah, so this idea has been around for a long time. Basically the concept that you have several different computers, the computers need to work together to accomplish something, and the workflow is the idea of accomplishing something across those different computers.
2: And it's, I think it's almost fascinating that we, you it looks like you're reinventing the wheel each time you you do it. You, why didn't we settle on a technology back in, you know, 1971 on this? But that you know, new problems and new systems come along that that need to be addressed in different ways, and you know, people might have different requirements. You know, it may be enough in some situations that you know I just want to run my job on a particular schedule, so a cron job might work perfectly fine for me. That you know, I might have some very different requirement. In other situations.
1: So, you're going to KubeCon. What are the developments in the community that you expect to see?
2: I think it's going to be really interesting. With COVID times, it kind of really changes how you experience something like KubeCon. Those kind of chit chats that you you have and those kind of accidental callway conversations, it's a tautology. Those are much harder. I think that's going to be a thing that's going to. A lot of people miss from that, and I think we'll learn a lot about that. I think we'll hear more about data and more database discussions at the conference. I think we'll hear more about multi-cluster, and I I actually don't know what people will be talking about in the multi-cluster space. I think we'll hear more of, again, more about data and machine learning and, and AI running on Kubernetes. I'm hoping we'll see some really interesting use cases from companies using kubernetes in ways that you you don't really know about i think we're going to hear a little bit about that i'm going to be speaking there i'll be speaking with jason hall we've we've got accepted we'll be talking a bit about lifecycle management of containers on kubernetes and about how we do that and how you know the kind of lessons that we've learned from building applications on kubernetes that do things that are a bit kind of esoteric or unusual maybe a bit on the a bit on the edge and I hope that people will come along to that and hope that'll be really popular. I certainly find that particular topic fascinating and I love hearing the sound of my own voice. So that'll be that'll be really fun. I wonder if people will be talking about developer communities as well, developer experience. That'll be interesting to see.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've been watching the Kubernetes ecosystem for I guess four years now and five years really. And it's gone to become this. I mean, it's just a gigantic I don't even want to talk about the cloud native landscape or whatever, the diagram with bajillion products on it, but it really is comprehensive and it increasingly covers everything in distributed systems. But, you know, as we draw to a close, you know, I'd love to get your perspective for, you know, Kubernetes is not, for me, it's hard to know what are the developments that are going on within Kubernetes itself, as opposed to the developments around it. So meaning I see lots of developments around it, things like Argo, Argo, Istio, Envoy, Calico, right? That's the networking interface thing, eBPF, whatever. So there's a bunch of these things, but is there still a lot of development going on in Kubernetes itself? Like
2: what kinds of advancements are taking place within Kubernetes itself? I'm going to say I would struggle to answer that question. They've reduced, recently reduced their release cadence. So I'm kind of hoping that it becomes like a utility. Like it doesn't actually evolve a great deal over time. Because you're know, building your applications on top of it, you don't necessarily want the APIs to be deprecated. You know, particularly of, often, you want to keep them in place to keep your application that, that uses those APIs. So I think that would probably be my hope for that core system is actually just it would go into a, a maintenance mode where we can all, you know, trust and rely on the features that, that are available to it. And I think anybody who's worked with Kubernetes will tell you that I mean they do an absolutely fantastic job of that. It takes a very long time for an a, API to be deprecated, and there's, and there's always a very clear Reason for it and a clear path to achieve the goal that you wanted to achieve with that particular API. So that would be my hopes for the ecosystem. Maybe some, there are some things that are really that you spend time on that you don't necessarily want to spend so much time on. Things like metrics and logging and, you know, reporting on the internal workings of of the cluster. How well are you using your resources? How well is that utilized? And a lot of this stuff doesn't really, there's not really much in the core of Kubernetes around that. It's all stuff that's built on top of it. But I feel we'll probably end up with a situation, the number of technologies that people use in those spaces tends to become a bit more, you know, there ends up being one particular technology that people gravitate towards and that they use. And I think we're seeing that with Prometheus in the metrics space. You know, Prometheus doesn't get bundled with Kubernetes, but you're probably going to be using it with Kubernetes. In terms of packaging your application manifests, tools like Customise and Helm are kind of very dominant in that area. So, and again, Customise is kind of quasi part of the Kubernetes core, but, but Helm isn't. You know, we don't see too much evolution in, in those spaces. So, I guess that's what I think will happen. Hope will happen rather than nothing. What I hope will happen in this area. Cool. Well, that's like a good
1: place to close off. I look forward to seeing you at KubeCon and hopefully it actually occurs. You know, it's such a dystopian time that <laughs> I really hope it happens.
2: Yes. And I'm, I mean, obviously I'm joking about getting out the house. So I, do, I do leave for other reasons.